0: We're resuming in our series on the church this morning, our short mini-series on the church. We've already looked at the church's essence, we've looked at the church's membership, we've looked at the church's pastors, we've looked at the church's deacons, and by the way, these are not all up on the website yet, but they will be, so you can always go back and listen if you've missed a couple. We had it broken up by Easter, so we've kind of lost our flow a little bit. But that's what we've covered so far. The church's essence, the church's membership, the church's pastors, and the church's deacons. Today we're looking at the church's mission. And you probably think I'm going to say evangelism. Or the Great Commission. Or something like that. And sure enough, we are going to look at that theme next week as part two of the church's mission. But today we're going to look at worship Worship is the church's mission. Worship is the church's primary mission. Even more so than evangelism. Throughout today's message, I'll explain and expand on that. I've said before that the role of pastor is like a shirt that I wear. There was a point when I put it on, but before that, I already existed. I was already me. In fact, I was already a Christian. And there will be a point when I put off this role of pastor. And after that, I will still exist. And I'll still be me. And I'll still be a Christian. An important implication of that. Is that being a pastor is not who I am. And that's important for me to remember. To remind myself from time to time. So that... I remember first... to be a Christian. Pastoral ministry... has to fit in around... being a Christian. Being a Christian is my priority. And I mention that simply to make a comparison... or to illustrate something. Likewise or in like manner for all Christians. Our role as evangelists is like a shirt that we put on for a time and that we will take off. We won't always be evangelists. But we will always be worshipers. The role of worshipper then is what we are as Christians. Evangelism is what we are doing. Part of what we're doing in the time being. When we are no longer evangelists, we will still be worshipers. Listen to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 13. This scene... In heaven, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 14 tells us that one day the knowledge of God's glory will fill this world as the waters cover the sea. When all of that happens, we will be worshipers. Worshippers, still, though no longer evangelists. This morning we're focusing on Romans 11 and verse 36, which I read for you a moment ago. But since it's so short, I'll go ahead and read it again. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. We see here that redemption, like all things, is for God's glory. Let me explain that. Romans 11.36 teaches that all things, all things, are for God's glory. Not only from Him are all things, in other words, everything which exists, except God Himself is from Him. Not only through Him are all things, in that He sustains and holds everything together and enables everything, and sovereignly ordains and providentially unfolds everything, such that everything can be said to be through Him. But also to Him are all things. All things are to God. It's another way of saying that all things are essentially for God. From Him and through Him and for Him are all things. That is for His benefit, so to speak. Another way of saying that is that all things are for God's glory. That is the intention of things, all things, is that they would manifest God's glory. That they would make God's glory known. And that through all things we would perceive God's glory. Through all things we would acknowledge God's glory. God's glory is His weight. That's quite literally what the word glory means, weight. Like something weighty, something important, something majestic, awe-inspiring, Something grave, not necessarily with negative connotations, but something heavy. Something that we really need to reckon with. All things are to show us the majesty, the importance, the weight of God's glory. To testify of that. I've said before, but I'll say it again. When Psalm 96 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. It's simply recognizing that which already is His. So you don't make someone the author of a book by ascribing authorship of a book to them. You don't ascribe, or you don't, pardon me, grant speed to an Olympic sprinter by ascribing speed to them. You're simply recognizing what's already there. And so God doesn't actually become more glorious as we see And perceive His glory. God doesn't actually become more glorious as we acknowledge His glory, as we praise Him. And yet, nevertheless, it's right to praise Him. It's right to ascribe or give glory to Him. Because that's the end for which all things were made. From Him are all things, through Him are all things, and to Him. That is, to the praise of His glory, for His glory are all things. And redemption is a thing. The redeemed, the people of God, are a thing. So from Him are the people of God. And through Him are the people of God. And to Him, for His glory are the people of God this verse then teaches us in a general way by implication what Isaiah 43 and verse 7 makes explicit your blessedness in salvation your blessedness in salvation is incidental in some sense Look at Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 7. You know what? I'm just going to go ahead and read from verse 1 of the same chapter. But verse 7 is what I want you to focus on as I get there. But now thus says the Lord... I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up; and to the south, Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar. And my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. Whom I created for my glory. Whom I formed and made. You see that? Anyone who has a share in Isaiah 43. Anyone who can say that when I pass through the waters, God will be with me. Anyone who can say when I pass through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm me. Anyone who can say, when I walk through fire, I shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume me. For the Lord, my God, the Holy One of Israel, is my Savior. Anyone who can say that, also has to say, I have been created for His glory. He formed me, and made me, He saved me, for His glory. Ephesians 1 is a beautiful exposition of the gospel. It speaks about the Father's choosing out of love a people. It speaks about the Son's coming to redeem through His blood to unite all things in Him things in heaven and things on earth it speaks about the spirits sealing and you know what it says about why God did all these things Ephesians 1 and verse 6 to the praise of His glorious grace Ephesians 1 and verse 12 To the praise of His glory. Ephesians 1 and verse 14. To the praise of His glory. Your blessedness in salvation is incidental in some sense. There's a sense in which it so happens that you are blessed by salvation. But that's not really the main point of salvation. This is backwards from the way it's so often presented to us. The way it's so often presented to us is that how dare there would be a universe where God wouldn't condescend to you to save you from your sin. How dare there would be a universe in which God would pass you over And not save you. Because you matter so much. The way the scripture talks about it. Yes, we were loved. By God with an everlasting love. Yes, at great cost. He redeemed us for himself. Yes, even as I spoke about. On last Sunday morning the servant of the Lord sees the results of His work and is satisfied. He's glad that you're His. He's glad that you belong to Him. But you understand that the way that the Scripture speaks about salvation is that ultimately it's for His glory. So we shouldn't be focusing On just how much we matter. And therefore the Lord saved us. We should be focusing on just how gracious grace is. Just how undeserved our salvation is. Just how far God has condescended to us. These sorts of things in order that we might glory in the God of our salvation. And in that sense, our blessedness is incidental. Your whole life, your whole life is not about you. Do you realize that? Your whole life is not about you. You are not even the center of your own world. Your whole life is a thing. And you remember what Romans 11 and verse 36 says. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Not just things outside of you, but you yourself are from God and through God and to God. Your whole life is for God and for God's glory. Why would you think that salvation would be any different? You, Christian, have been saved for God's glory. We, Christians, together, having been made a people, having been put together as the church, universal, and a church, locally, by extrapolation that exists for God's glory. Our main purpose is to glorify God. In view of this truth then we the redeemed should figure out how to do what we ought as best as we can. Namely to glorify God. At first I'll start by acknowledging that the redeemed, like all things, should glorify God simply by doing the things that our nature was designed for. So a rock glorifies God simply by being a rock. When we go out and we see a landscape, it glorifies God simply by being a landscape. By being that which it was created to be. That which by nature it is. And likewise, we, the redeemed, glorify God simply by doing the things that our nature was intended to do. Romans eleven thirty six again, from Him are all things. Humanness is a thing. Humanness is from God, and through God, and to God. Just as birdness, so to speak, is from God, and through God, and to God. Or waterness. You understand? Just as the sea is from and through and to God, and birds are from and through and to God, and they give glory to God simply by being the sea and by being birds, we humans give glory to God simply by being human as we are intended to be. <clears throat> What are we intended to be, to do? Well, among other things, fill the earth and subdue it, as Genesis one twenty-eight says. We talked about bringing light, order, and life when I was preaching on that section many months ago. This includes many different activities. <clears throat> Certainly work. Genesis 2.15 tells us that God put Adam in the garden to work it and keep it. We glorify God simply by working the garden and keeping it. By doing well in our jobs. Doing our best in our jobs. Working hard to that end. That's a human thing. And it glorifies God. In our family life. I was preaching at a wedding recently on Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Chapter 9 and verse 9. And the second part of that verse is not in our purview this morning, but the first part is enjoy life with the wife whom you love. That glorifies God. Just to enjoy family life, to do a human thing, to be a family man or a family woman, spend time with your significant other, your kids, and then rest and leisure. I mentioned Ecclesiastes nine and verse nine, we can go back a couple of verses. And it says, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Nothing wrong with just enjoying yourself and enjoying life. All of these things are part of God's design for us in just being human. And so as we go about our lives, we are when we are doing human things, when we're acting humanly. We are, in a sense, glorifying God. And we ought to do it with explicit thankfulness to God. Romans chapter 1 and verse 21 talks about the depravity of the human race, saying that although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. As we enjoy life with the wife whom we love, as we eat our bread, as we drink our wine, as we work and keep the garden that's in front of us, so to speak, we should do it with thankfulness to God and honor Him as God in the midst of it. Our attitude should be Godward. All of this is what we might call being worshipful. Worshipful. We're doing things other than worship, and I'm going to expand on that in a second. We're doing things other than worship, but we're doing things with a worshipful attitude. This is the way that we ought to go about our lives. For the glory of God. By being worshipful as we do human things. As 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So, like all creation, birds, water, rocks, whatever... We glorify God by doing the things that our nature was designed for. However, though there is a similarity in the way that in the ways in which all things ought to glorify God and in the way that humans ought to glorify God, there's also a significant dissimilarity. The redeemed unlike all things should also glorify God through worship our nature's response as human beings our nature as human beings ought to respond to creation and to redemption with worship that verse I just read from Romans chapter 1 and verse 21 speaks about the way that people wrongly responded, even just to the work of creation. It's not talking in Romans 1.21 about those who rejected the gospel per se. It's speaking about those who rejected general revelation. That which is just in creation. They did not honor God or give thanks to him. The implication is that even those who don't know anything about the gospel ought to honor God. Our human nature was designed to honor God and to give thanks to Him. The response of our hearts then to creation ought to be to worship. We ought to look around and see the birds in the heavens. We ought to see the fish in the sea. The environments in which they fly and swim, respectively. We ought to look around at the foliage all around us and worship and think to ourselves, what a God made all of this. How great He must be. And we ought to worship. The Gospel doesn't decrease our obligation to worship. Like, Jesus died for our failure to worship, therefore we don't have to worry about our failure to worship anymore. Why worry about the duty to worship, since we're free from the law? We used to have the duty to worship, but now we don't like words like duty, because Jesus died for our sins. You see how backwards that logic is? If even those who don't know anything about the gospel have the duty to worship, then those who not only see everything that everyone else around sees, but they know the God who has come in Christ to redeem, they ought to worship all the more. When we look around, even at creation, we see that things are not the way they're supposed to be. You see some things that are not the way they're supposed to be, and you can attribute them to human involvement. Like when you find, for instance, turtles or fish stuck in those plastic things that they put around cans and bottles. Without our pollution, those animals wouldn't be suffering. So you can attribute those things kind of directly to our activity and our involvement. But when you see earthquakes and tsunamis and when you see wildfires and when people lose their lives, when you see miscarriages, when you see all kinds of brutal things that we have no control over you realize that though this world is still in many ways very beautiful, there's something wrong with this world. And you read your Bible, and in Genesis chapter 3, you learn that it's because of sin. God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. You. No one would die in a tsunami if it wasn't for Adam's sin. You understand that? No babies would be miscarried if it wasn't for Adam's sin. The thing that is wrong with this world is sin. You go on and you read that God, though He formed everything for His glory, and though His original creation rebelled against His design... And he who was intended to be a steward of creation defaulted on his responsibility and was not what he should have been, and instead disobeyed the Creator and plunged everything into chaos again. God did not leave. God did not abandon this world. God made promises beginning that very day. He said to the snake that a seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. He went on to promise over and over again in Scripture the things concerning Our salvation from the misery into which Adam plunged us. We finally come in the New Testament to Jesus. And we read of Him. Like what we read in Ephesians chapter 1. That He would unite all things in Him things in heaven, and things on earth. And that this has begun by reconciling Jew to Gentile, reconciling us both together in one body to God Himself. We read in Romans 8 and elsewhere that even creation itself will be reconciled. And there will be no more tsunamis and there will be no more earthquakes and there will be no more miscarriages. And God shall wipe away every tear from our eyes. And in fact, even the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ. And even heaven and earth shall be one as the dwelling place of God descends in Revelation 21 to be with men. Listen, if even people who don't know anything about that gospel ought to worship, how much more ought we as Christians to worship? God would send His Son to do that for us, who have, as we saw last week, like sheep gone astray? God would send Christ Jesus not only to be the propitiation for my sin as an individual and save me to be with him, but God would bring many sons to glory and put us together in the church. What a God! And not only would he put us together in the church, but he would make all things new. And He would make a new heavens and a new earth in which we may live together with Him forever. If even people that don't know about the gospel ought to worship. They ought to have honored God as Romans one twenty one says. And given thanks to Him. How much more ought we, the redeemed, to give glory to God. To honor Him. And to give thanks to Him. Jesus said that if these are silent even, the rocks will cry out. But we are not therefore to leave it to the rocks. As Psalm 96 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. We ought to worship and not merely be worshipful. Note that this point assumes a distinction between being worshipful and worshiping though all of life is to be worshipful not all of life is worship at least in a strict sense we can speak broadly like if someone says if someone on the street says to me well all of life is worship and i try to glorify god in all that i do i'm not going to be like well technically not all of life you understand we speak sometimes loosely But strictly speaking, though all of life is to be worshipful, not all of life is worship. Consider that if all of life is worship for the Christian, then nothing is distinctively worship. If all of life is worship, then there's no meaningful distinction between cutting your toenails and praying. If all of life is worship, There's no meaningful distinction between reading the nation newspaper and reading the Bible. There would be no meaningful distinction between a church gathering on a Sunday morning to play cricket and doing what we do. Read, pray, sing, preach, observe the sacraments. Not all of life is worship in a strict sense. We ought to, we ought to actually worship and not only be worshipful. You ought not to go through your life cutting your toenails and reading the nation newspaper and doing all things for the glory of God, but never singing to the Lord a new song. Never telling of His salvation from day to day. Never crying out, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Always leaving it to the rocks to cry out. Because for you, you can't be bothered to cry out because all of life is worship. You understand? God has appointed that we also worship in addition to simply being worshipful. He's appointed both rhythms and elements of that which is truly worship. Let's consider both in turn. First, God has appointed rhythms of that which is, to- which is truly worship. And I say rhythms as opposed to time slots. Because I can't make the case biblically that you need to worship from 8am to 9am or 6 to 7pm or whatever the case may be. But the point is that there is a rhythm to life. God intends for us to worship. And then be worshipful until the next time we worship. And then worship again. And then be worshipful until the next time we worship. And then worship again. Understand? There's a pattern. There's a rhythm. That we're either to be worshiping or being worshipful. But it's not all to be one or the other. We're not to always, always just be standing around singing to the Lord a new song. And telling of His salvation from day to day while our employer is looking for us. On Monday morning. We worship. And then we go and be worshipful in the other things for which the Lord formed us. You can't just say to God, I'm always worshiping, because the fact is that you're not. If you never set aside time for worship, then you're never worshiping. It's not that you're always worshipping, it's that you're never worshipping. It takes time, and set aside time to worship. This is why I talk about rhythms. God has appointed that there would be rhythms in our lives. Time when we're engaged with God. And you should be worshipping both daily and weekly. According to the scriptures, God's mercies are new every morning. And the logic of the scripture is ascribed to the Lord, that which is due, his name. So if the Lord's mercies are new every morning, is he due worship every morning? You understand? Could it be appropriate for a morning to go by in which Romans chapter 1 and verse 21, in which as Romans 1 and verse 21 says, you do not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Could that be appropriate when the Lord's mercies are new every morning? We ought to be worshipping God daily. Every day He's due worship. The only way we can say that we ought not, that we're not duty bound to worship God daily, is if He's not due worship daily. Because the logic of the entire first half of this sermon has been Give God that which He's due If you've agreed with the first half and you're saying yes If those who don't even know the gospel but just look around at creation Should have worshipped because God is due it from creation And if we as the redeemed ought to worship all that much more Then that logic should drive us to worship God daily Because every day He is worthy of our worship. And then according to the scriptures, God set aside one day and seven for worship at creation. At creation, not at Sinai. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3 speaks about the institution of the Sabbath day. It's not a Mosaic thing. From creation to the resurrection of Christ, the appointed day of worship was the seventh day. From the resurrection until now, it's the first day of the week, Sunday. Can a Lord's Day go by, which is not in any meaningful sense, the Lord's? Why is it called the Lord's Day then? If it's not in any meaningful sense, the Lord's. Christians, You need to prioritize daily worship, independently. And if you're married, with your spouse. And if you have kids, with them. Men, it's part of your mandate to lead your wives. To lead your children in the things of the Lord. Many men are happy enough to talk about male headship. But fewer men are actually exercising godly headship in the home. In their marriages and families the way that they should be. And then Christian, you need to prioritize the weekly gathering of the saints on Sunday. And I would add here, both of them. I've joked before that it's called the Lord's Day and not the Lord's morning. And it's funny. At least I think it's funny. <laughs> but it's actually true. I didn't invent the term the Lord's day. And neither did theologians of a bygone age. It's called that in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. By the apostle John himself. And by his usage, John legitimizes the term. Sunday is, legitimately, biblically, and indisputably, the Lord's day. That's not my opinion. That's just actually what Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10 says. Therefore, it's supposed to be a day for the Lord. It's the Lord's day. It doesn't belong to you. It's not your day. It's the Lord's day. God has appointed rhythms of worship. We actually need to take time to sing to the Lord a new song to tell of His salvation from day to day. Worship, then be worshipful until the next time you worship. Then worship again, and then be worshipful until the next time you worship. And then worship again, and then be worshipful until the next time you worship. This is the way that God has designed life to be. It's not that we always have to be standing around. Not now and not in eternity. Singing songs and playing harps. God has given us vocation. He's given us duties, work, responsibilities. He's given us gardens to work and to keep. He doesn't want us to neglect our husbands or our wives under the pretense of worship. Or to neglect our children under the pretense of worship. God actually doesn't want you to be worshipping all the time. He wants you to be worshipful all the time. And He wants you to embrace the rhythms of worship that He has indicated we ought to in His Word. So, be worshipful every day. And then embrace the rhythms of daily and weekly worship that God has appointed. God has also appointed the elements of worship. Just as it is true that if all of life is worship for the Christian, then nothing is distinctively worship, so it is true that when we come to consider the activities or elements of worship, if all activities are worship, then nothing is distinctively worship. If I dig a hole in my garden with a worshipful attitude, does that make it worship? If I am, by vocation, a clown who makes people laugh, and I do so while maintaining a worshipful attitude, is therefore my clowning around worship? I think we can see that the answer is no. Not all activities, not all elements are worship. It wouldn't be appropriate to have a church gather for hole digging instead of For instance, reading, praying, preaching, singing on a Sunday. Neither would it be appropriate for us to get together and have a clown come up and entertain us. Because these are not elements of worship. There's nothing wrong with digging holes and there's nothing wrong with clowns making people laugh. But these things are not worship. God has appointed certain activities as worship. How we decide what is worship and what isn't, isn't by our own whims. We just think, well... This seems worshipful. We don't do that. We look at the scripture and we see what has God said is worship. Who is the authority on worship? Me? You? What about the clown who loves his job? Right? We look at the things that God has prescribed in his word. Paul tells Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. Titus tells us that the grace of God has been manifest through preaching. We certainly read in Scripture that we are to pray unceasingly, but it's also part and parcel of every time you see the church gathering for worship in Scripture, uh, there's, there's prayer. Prayer is certainly part of God's appointment. Then there's the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's table. We have very clearly warrant for these. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. And the, the Lord's table, right? This uh, Do this in remembrance of me. And then there's offering, which is a little bit less clear, but it says in 1 Corinthians, on the first day of the week set aside a proportion of your income, that there may be no collecting when I come. Admittedly, that's a disputable one, but uh, many have concluded that that's also an element of public worship, that it's not just we happen to pass the offering plate on a Sunday, but that it's actually a, an element of worship. Some have said that simply the giving in, in itself is an, is a worship is an act of worship. And whether you do it on a Sunday morning or whether you do online giving or whatever, is neither here nor there. I'm not going to die on that hill. But my point is simply to say that these are the things that God has prescribed in Scripture as worship. Things which are not prescribed in Scripture explicitly or things that we don't see um, uh, by positive example outlined for us in Scripture, we don't have warrant doing in a worship gathering so we don't gather to dig holes even though digging holes is fine if you're a landscaper and we don't gather to make jokes and make other people laugh and clown around even though it's completely fine if you're employed as a clown to do such things but when we gather for worship we do those things which are worship now I'm going to push the envelope here a little bit to make the point a little more salient I asked a moment ago, if I dig a hole in my garden with a worshipful attitude, does that make it worship? If I'm a clown who makes people laugh while maintaining a worshipful attitude, does that make it worship? What if the children of the church act out a little play about Jesus' birth? And they do so with a worshipful attitude. Does that make it worship? You see, we have to get down to the principle... Of it, and I'm not the Grinch who hates Christmas. (laughs) Nor am I. Nor am I the guy that doesn't find it cute when the little children parade around as sheep and shepherds and angels and whatnot. But we have to. We have to ask ourselves: How do we know what is worship and what isn't? Is it based upon our feelings and what we think is worship? And so, if we think that it's worship, and if we do it with a worshipful attitude, then that's okay. Or is it according to the prescription of God's word? And I think we can all see that, for instance, gathering to dig holes. If I said instead of preaching this morning, I figured we could all just go over across the street and help the neighbor uh, with his irrigation. I think we could all see that that wouldn't be the proper thing to do. It might be worshipful for us to gather another day of the week to do that, but that wouldn't be a worship service. The same principle holds, though, even with things that are nearer and dearer to our hearts. And things that people would tend to not be as instinctive about. So whether people want to bring in clowns or muscle men or even just little children doing a skit or whatever, we have to recognize the principle is that worship is that which God has prescribed in His Word. And if it's not, it doesn't make that activity inappropriate in and of itself. We just have to recognize that that's not to be part of our gathered worship. So in summary of this section then, because of our nature, who we are as beings, humans, not rocks, not birds, we're not water molecules that together make up the sea We are people, moral beings, made in the image of God. Sinners, and many of us saved sinners. Because of who we are, we ought not only to simply be worshipful according to our nature, as all of creation is to be worshipful according to our nature, but we are to worship. We are to embrace the rhythms of worship. Of being worshipful all the day long. And then worshiping. And then being worshipful until the next time we worship. And then worshiping again. And so on and so forth. And we are also to embrace the elements of worship. We are actually to do the things that God has prescribed in the scripture. Read the scripture. Preach the scripture. Listen to the preaching of the scripture. Pray. Observe the sacraments. Take up an offering, contribute to the needs of the saints. These are the things that we are to embrace and that we are to do. Recognizing that this is part of what it means for us, not only as humans, but as sinners saved by grace. This is the right response of our hearts to God. This is our mission. This is our purpose to be to God. As a church, to be to God. As a church, to be a worshipping church. To embrace the rhythms that God has appointed. To embrace the elements that God has appointed. For His glory. This is what we ought to be as a church. This is what we ought to see as our primary mission. As I said next week, we will talk about evangelism. And those of you who know me know that I am very strong on the importance and the duty and the responsibility and the practice, not just the theory of evangelism. And so this is in no way intended to diminish that. But it is to recognize that long after evildoers have been gathered out of God's kingdom, long after the whole earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the sea, long after we see, not through a glass dimly, but face to face, we will still be worshipping. And so just as I need to see that it's more fundamental to my identity, that I'm a Christian, than that I'm a pastor, so we need to see that more fundamentally, we as Christians and we as the church are worshipers than evangelists. And we got to keep our focus then on worship. We need to make it a priority. You've probably heard before whether from me or from someone else whether in this context or whether in another an illustration something like that which I'm about to share with you. You imagine a large in-ground pool and you have At the side of the pool, a big mound of sand, a big pile of marbles, a big pile of tennis balls, and a big pile of footballs. If you take the in-ground pool and you fill it with sand, you can't fit any of the other things in there. No marbles will fit, no tennis balls will fit, no footballs will fit. Conversely, if you start with the footballs, Then you can fit in some tennis balls around them. And then you can still fit in some marbles around them. And finally you can fit in some sand around them. If your goal is to get some of each into the in-ground pool, it makes sense to start with the footballs. Worship ought to be in our schedule, in our hearts, in our priorities. Like footballs. Not like sand. We don't fill our lives with everything else. And then hope that we can fit a little bit of worship in afterwards. We start with worship. We start with the rhythms of worship that God has woven into this world. The daily, the weekly. We put those in our schedule as fixed points. There are, there are fixed points in your schedule. I hope you know that. There are things that you don't move unless you need to. Like work. You don't presumably just phone in half the time and say you're not coming. And if you do, you won't be there for long. There are fixed points where you just say, I just can't because I have this prior commitment. Worship should be like that, you know. Where whatever else we do, we walk with God. We're not just worshipful people, but we set aside the time to embrace the rhythms of worship that God has put in place. Then we fill in the other things around that. Other things which are important and legitimate. As I said, neither on this side of glory, nor on the other side of glory, are we to be standing around singing and playing harps all the day long. God has designed us for multifaceted... Activities. But we fit the other things in around the work of worship. Because fundamentally, fundamentally, what is life about? What is the church about? What is your family's life about? What is your family's schedule about? Ultimately, at the end of the day, Romans 11.36 teaches us that it should be about the glory of God. Because you are a thing, your family is a thing, the church is a thing, and we know that fundamentally, the most basic thing we can say is that all things are to Him. And so we put the most important things in place, and then we fill in around those, the other things where we can. Christians ought to prioritize not only being worshipful, but actually worshiping according to the rhythms and the elements that God has prescribed.